Hello, I am Michael Landreth, co-producer and host of this episode of Careers in the Public Humanities. Our guest for this episode is Corey Oglesby, a graduate of the University of Idaho who works for the city of Moscow, Idaho, and the episode includes discussion of the political dynamic in Moscow and the impact of that situation on the nearby University of Idaho. We recorded our conversation with Corey prior to the horrific violence that occurred in Moscow on the morning of November 13, 2022, that claimed the lives of four University of Idaho students. On a personal note, both my daughter and I are graduates of the University of Idaho, so I have a deep connection to the school and the surrounding area, and like all members of the University of Idaho family, I am heartbroken by the shocking loss of life that has impacted the lives of the families of the victims, as well as the campus and the surrounding community. Since the city of Moscow features prominently in this episode, we at Careers in the Public Humanities would be remiss if we posted this episode without acknowledging the recent tragic events in the community, and we ask that everyone keep the University of Idaho and the city of Moscow in your thoughts as they join together to face the difficult recovery process ahead. Thank you. Tens of thousands of graduate degrees are awarded in the humanities each year. Where's all this talent headed? What are these scholars doing? Hello and welcome. You're listening to Careers in the Public Humanities, a podcast that explores the range of careers open to humanities graduates beyond the tenure track. Each episode will interview an advanced humanities degree holder who has put their degree to use in innovative ways, within cultural institutions, in digital or media production, in state and federal agencies, and other literary and cultural publics, in hopes of inspiring other humanities graduate scholars to broaden their career possibilities. This podcast is produced by English graduate students and alumni at the University of Rhode Island and has been made possible by Humanities at Large, a URI initiative funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities Next Generation PhD Grant Program. Welcome back. We're pleased that you are here to join us for our new episode of Careers in the Public Humanities. If you're a returning listener, uh, I think you'll like the guests we have lined up. And if it is your first time listening, I hope this this guest will uh, give you a reason to return to the next one. Uh, We have with us today, Corey Oglesby. He is a writer and musician based in Moscow, Idaho. Uh, He began his college career in his mid-20s at a uh, community college in Southern Maryland before he transferred to Frostburg State University. There he found mentors and poets Jerry LaFemina and the late Stephen Dunn, both of whom encouraged him to pursue an MFA, which he did. He graduated from the University of Idaho MFA program in creative writing with an emphasis in poetry in 2018. He's had work appear in several different uh, poetry journals. He's been a finalist for the Adrian Rich Poetry Award twice, uh, and he currently works as a digital media specialist for the city of Moscow um, municipal government and Uh, He's also continuing his work as a musician. He's involved in multiple musical projects at the moment, including the bands Monopines, Mother Yeti, and Desolation Horse, all of which you can find on any major streaming platform. I hope I am not being too presumptuous to add that Corey Oglesby is also 
uh, one of my best friends in the world, or or is that overstating our relationship? Not at all. Not at all. Okay. Well, we can talk about it more off air if you're uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> so I said a little bit about uh, you know your path from you know, your musical interests to uh, your college and academic career, and, and ultimately winding up as a student in the MFA program at the University of Idaho. None of that necessarily points to becoming a digital media specialist. Uh, and so just in general, I, before we get into some broader topics, I want to talk about specifically your journey, because I think it's interesting. I, sort of give me a chronological outline, starting from you know how you begin as kind of a musician and somehow this leads into you uh you know going to school and and doing that for a while you never sort of leave the music behind um tell me the chronology of all that how did that uh sort of journey take you through those spots and you end up in moscow idaho studying poetry yeah uh it's a great question um i i was thinking about it i i I think um, music started really early for me at, you know, I think it was age 10 or 11 when I got my first guitar and my two cousins who were similar age got their instruments at the same time. And we didn't really take lessons. We didn't know what we were doing. We knew what kind of music we liked, stuff like that. And that was our starting point. And from there, we uh, really quickly were recording our own little albums on cassettes and things like that. And that included, you know, making, doing it all ourselves, learning how the microphones worked, uh, getting a lot of feedback, getting a lot of lost recordings, just experimenting with the technology sort of free range, nobody really telling us what to do and how to do it. So I, I feel like that was like a, a really, that sort of started a life of picking up technology, kind of shaking it, looking at it and smelling it and seeing where the on button is, and, you know, because we were just doing it all ourselves. So um I would say and that's the origin. I mean, this didn't. This ended up being a lot more than a hobby. I mean, it, at a young age, you were a pretty serious musician. I mean, you were touring. And, and, no, I wouldn't say touring in the sense that people probably think of it, but definitely like playing a lot of shows in Maryland and you know some in DC and things like that up and down the East Coast. But that yeah. sounds like a tour to me. <laughs> sure. But, uh, but so you're doing that for a while. Um, late teens, early twenties, I, I take it is is when this is happening. Um, at what point do you decide, well, you know what, I'm gonna go back to school and, and what sort of motivated that? Well, the band I was in for that, that band I just described, the 11 year olds turned into, you know, 17 year olds at some point and everybody graduated high school and went, went their own ways. And I was sort of left without a band. Um, but I was left with all this sort of various inspiration that comes from being a musician in a band. Um, I, you know, I had fallen in love with lyric writing and, um, song structure and you know sort of putting together all the pieces of something like a four minute pop song or punk song whatever I was doing so I was I, I was you know like a lot of 20 year olds find themselves in the position of like all right what do I, now what do I do um and uh I was like well lyric song lyrics are very different from poetry but I was like I think there's something here and I and in my time in uh community college I took a couple poetry classes including um independent study about William Butler Yeats and um that class in particular, I was like, okay, maybe I'm a poet because I, I like love all of this and I, it's really speaking to me and I, I'm, I might be good at it. I don't know. My teacher thinks I'm okay at it. Um, so I, I think that was sort of beginning of that part. Um, but I do think it came from songwriting, um, my love for poetry. I do see them as very similar, at least in my own life and work. 
So I mentioned your mentors, uh, Stephen Dunn in particular is somebody who, uh, anybody who sort of runs in poetry circles and, and knows kind of the contemporary poetry world knows Stephen Dunn. And, and I've never heard one person say anything other than uh, they have the utmost respect for his work. And uh, so you get there, you're working with Stephen and he and uh, Jerry uh, sort of in, encouraged you to go to graduate school. Yeah, yeah. Jerry Lefemna specifically took me under his wing pretty much right away when I got to Frostburg. I, I, I'm not sure of the exact, I, th- I mean, I think I took his poetry class and um, I think he was like, this this guy's really into this um, and, and got something to say. So um, he, you know, just, yeah, mentored me and like kind of gave me a lot of books to read, um, including Galway Cannell's Book of Nightmares was something from one of his classes, which just changed my life in a lot of ways, that book. And then, you know, through doing readings and just sort of becoming a part of the literary community in Frostburg, I, I became friends with um, Stephen Dunn and his wife, Barbara Hurd. And they had a little weekly, I think it was weekly, writing group in their living room. Um, and I eventually got invited to that. And I was terrified, uh, a total imposter syndrome. What what am I doing here? And But it was it was humbling in all the best ways. And it was just a huge wealth of information and education in those in those few months that I was doing that at Stephen's house. Um, even just watching his mind at work, his eyes going over a poem and saying, yes, yes, not quite, not quite. You know, his, it was just such a gift to be able to observe that and be a part of that conversation on those Monday nights. I don't remember, I, I, I remember at some point I showed Stephen some fiction I had written because I was like, you know, I kind of like fiction. I want I want to learn more about that. I felt like I'd spent most of my undergrad in poetry land. And uh, he very kindly but firmly said, don't go for fiction, please. He's <laughs> like, go for, go for poetry. Not that it's bad, but just you're don't a poet. do that. Uh, so, yeah, he's like, you're a poet. This, this is exactly <laughs> yeah. advice that was given to me in my own undergrad. Like, no, you're a poet. Mm-hmm. Stop it. Um, yep. So uh, the reason I think all this is interesting, and well, we, we will get into some of the specifics of your own poetry and, and your uh, musical work as well. But as I sort of said in, in introducing this topic, how any of this leads to being a digital media specialist as uh, one of the projects that you're in now for, uh, you know, a uh, what, what, how big is Moscow? About 25,000, 30,000 people, I believe, right? That sounds right. Yeah, it's roughly the population. I should mention that I also attended the University of Idaho with, with Corey. Uh, so I, I know the, the city of Moscow pretty well. And, and we're going to talk about uh, that area some uh, in, in a bit. But um, what I think is interesting is, I, in my experience, when you get into an MFA program or a PhD program or a master's program, any kind of graduate program, you get such an interesting mix of people that are, that are doing such varied kinds of work that the reason you think you're going into a graduate program is not necessarily the only thing that that graduate program is going to do for you. You're, you're almost uh, sort of vicariously going to pick up these other things and some of the other things you got introduced to at the University of Idaho while working on your MFA in poetry led kind of directly to the digital media specialist work. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm thinking about this, uh, the control uh, shift project in particular, probably was, was that maybe your first sort of introduction to 
digital media specialist as the kind of thing you could do for money? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, it's honestly the digital media blank, you know, specialist coordinator, digital project manager was my position title at um, CDIL. Um, it, it occurred to me after like maybe my third job with, with the word digital in the title that I was like, okay, I'm a digital person. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and I think that's to say, yeah, CDIL was sort of a big door open. Devin Becker, who's also an amazing Explain poet. what CDIL is very quickly. Oh, so, yeah, Center for Digital Inquiry and Learning. Um, it's a grant-funded, or started as a grant-funded um, program at the University of Idaho Library uh, by the Digital Humanities librarian there, um, Devin Becker, who's a great poet, and he was on my thesis committee, a great friend. He, he scooped me up after graduating in 2018, and... Um, got me plugged in at the CDIL where basically they would take digital humanities projects of all kinds. They had a faculty level fellowship and they had a graduate and then an undergraduate fellowships that they um, did on a yearly basis. And it, a, a, a wide variety of projects came through there and they were, but they, they all shared, you know, some sort of digital core element. Um, one of the, one of the coolest ones I got to work on was one called uh, Voices of Gay Rodeo, which was a, um, oral history project sort of documenting these individual stories throughout the gay rodeo community in, in the West or sort of all over America. And that was led by Rebecca Schofield, Dr. Rebecca Schofield um, at, at the UI. And uh, a lot of a lot of really cool projects like that, just co coding, adding metadata to things like oral history repositories and editing video, because there was video element to a lot of those um, interviews that she did and um, everything from that down to making the flyer for sort of the public facing promo for the project once it debuted. Um, and I just kind of, well, I had never been directly engaged in digital humanities in that kind of way. And, and sort of Devin opened the door to a whole world of possibilities in the digital humanities that I, you know, they're there, but I didn't know how they worked or how much was behind them or, you know. Well, it's still really, like, we, I, we've talked about uh, digital humanities, uh, and, and had guests uh, who uh, have a, you know, pretty extensive background in, in digital humanities. And I think there's kind of a consensus that, you know, we're still sort of working that out, what the digital humanities is, how it works, how it can be impactful. And so uh, I venture to say that you sort of were introduced to it at a time when a lot of these questions were initially being asked, and uh, it, it sounds that the Voices of Gay Rodeo project uh, is very cool and, and is, a, I think, a really good example of how a digital humanities project can be impactful in all the ways we want humanities projects to work like that. Um, we were also very interested in the uh, Control Shift project, which I, I know is one that was sort of close to your heart. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so that that was um, Devin Becker's uh, heart and soul. That project it was um, something I think he started on sabbatical one year. Um, he he interviewed eleven, I want to say, poets. So this was another oral histories project um, repository, and uh, he basically interviewed several prominent poets whose careers spanned the advent of the personal computer. Um, you know, began before everyone had a laptop and now continues on and everyone has a laptop in their pocket. Um, and he basically interviewed them 
ask ask them questions about their own data. Like how do, how does a writer like um, Louise Glick, who's one of the poets he interviewed, how does she treat drafts? How does she store them? How does she archive her own work? Does she archive her own work? Things like that. Um, it's very, very specific questions about, you know, basically digital practices of poets, which as you can imagine with poet yourself ranges from amazing, fully structured, beautiful notebooks on a shelf to people that don't like me who don't know where their last draft is probably balled up on the floor over here somewhere. <laughs> but uh, sometimes I have stuff just typed into notepad on my phone that I'll remember I typed it up like six months later and be like, oh yeah, I've yeah. something there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he, he, that was his main question with that project. And, um, you know, how, how do these writers, how do they adapt and how do they continue to engage with their own writing in a digital context, which is sort of an inescapable context for a lot of us. And he, I was, that was one of the first projects I was brought on for. And, um, I, I do some illustration work here and there and graphic design and stuff. So he, he sort of tapped all my skills there. Uh, he had me do some drawing for the website, help design it with him, uh, did a lot of proofreading and sort of curating data, organizing things, adding metadata to things. And what was really cool about his project, Control Shift, was that the interviews were the interviews and they were fascinating to just sit and listen to like a podcast. Um, but the what he was trying to do was to use things like metadata and tags um, in, in inside of the language, sentiment analysis, really cool, like sort of state-of-the-art things at, at the time at least, to provide site viewers and listeners to the of the readers or listeners to the interviews to different ways into the interviews so you could you can select you know a single question and then quickly see because of his coding you know all of the answers to just that question on a single page and it's kind of skip through all of the interviews um, based on questions or based on tags or keywords and things like that and i think he continues to add to it and as you know new tools become available and um, i encourage anybody poet or not, uh, anyone interested in sort of how, how one archives their own work or stores it digitally, you know, um, it's just fascinating stuff. All of this, uh, the, why I think all of both uh, sort of your journey to get to where you were and the sort of specific projects that you end up working on sort of not intentionally, I guess, or, or not the kind of thing that you were seeking out, uh, almost things that you just stumble into. Uh, what I'm getting at is I don't think that's an uncommon graduate school experience and, and that uh, mm. when we think about, uh, at, at our podcast at least, uh, how um, your graduate school experience can translate to all of these other possibilities in the public humanities that are outside of, of academia uh, in many ways, it, it can be, you know, those things that you sort of accidentally stumble into that, that lead you down these paths that, that you didn't expect into these public humanities careers. And that's what happens for you, right? You, you uh, after you uh, leave Idaho and, and the CDIL, you end up at Washington State for a while. And what was your title there? And uh, what kind of work were you doing at Washington State University? That was that was quite different. That was um, what was my title? Communications specialist, comma trainer, which is kind of an awkward title. And that that job was really interesting in hindsight because I mean I started in November of 2019, and pretty much immediately was we were all removed from campus and we're working from home, and I still didn't really know who was who or like who to email with questions or. I never really was in my office in that job. I had an office for like a month and a half. Um. But that, that was more communications-based. Um, I worked for the information technology department, um, 
essentially helping them with mostly internal communications regarding new technology rollouts like Zoom, which is what's something that they had just introduced at WSU pretty much right when I got there in November of 2019, which is kind of crazy to think about. It was it was still really new back then. And it was replacing Skype for business. I don't know if anyone remembers that or still uses it. Um, but so, you know, WSU is an enormous statewide university. There's campuses in every corner of the state. And um, our little team of three people were basically tasked with figuring out effective, interesting ways to teach the whole university community how to use these various technologies as they rolled out things like Microsoft Teams or what were some others, Canvas, which replaced Blackboard, and I think continues to replace Blackboard at a lot of universities now. Um, that was all new stuff back then. So um, that was less digital human. I mean, I, was, I guess that's not digital humanities. Um, but it still incorporated a lot of skills that I learned at the CDIL and in grad school, especially just being a good writer, <laughs> being well, able to. You sort of bring up one of the directions I wanted this question to go is in terms of this, this very idea of what is and what is not digital humanities, right? Um, mm. and, and what makes something the digital humanities. It, it uh, You know, some people might argue that some of your work and we'll, we'll We've talked about some of what you've done at CDIL and Washington State, and, and we'll definitely get into uh, what you do uh, in your role for the city of Moscow. But a lot of this work that you are involved in, some might argue that it, it lacks a kind of public activism, right, that, um, that maybe we want to attach to uh, good public humanities work. But I guess the question I would ask then, uh, it, do you think there is a, an element of public activism attached to things like a, what you were doing as a CDIL or, or even just a communications rollout? Is, is there, I mean, I have my own thoughts on it, but, but is there anything that you think is publicly engaged in a way that maybe we're unfair if we just immediately say this is not digital humanities? Yeah. Uh, I mean, especially the city now, the city of Moscow, where I'm sort of by necessity, I have to serve the entire community, regardless of political affiliation or agenda. I've sort of begun to see everything I've done since since graduating um, in this line of work as creating access. And that might not be activism. I mean, one could argue it's uh, kind of baseline activism to, to provide access to uh, people who otherwise might not be as familiar with uh, kind of the di digital or technological stuff that you almost have to have access to now uh, if you're going to be uh, a, a sort of engaged citizen, I suppose, whether we're talking yeah. a, a campus community or, or a broader citywide community. Yeah, um, you know, whether it's a student um, or a, a citizen in Moscow, like I, you know, I, I see my job as creating access for them to engage more with their local government or with their university or with their own education when I was at WSU. Um, the goal always being to like improve existing information portals or to create new ones. Like um, for instance, like at WSU when COVID happened, you know, the, there were, it's crazy to think back to that time, but the, you know, there were a lot of people like, well, maybe you just schools out, schools out for the summer until we figure all of this out. It, it, that couldn't happen in a lot of ways. So um, things like Zoom and how to use Zoom and how to use it effectively became enormous 
topics and, and enormously important. So how do we do that? You've got to be able to, you've got to have a strong digital communications team that can teach these concepts, you know, so that the education can keep happening so that classes can still go. And I see that as sort of a baseline activism, yeah, because work like that ends up being really important so that maybe activism can happen in those classes or Otherwise happen from those classes. So keeping, keeping the microphone on, no matter who's coming up to speak into it, I've come to just sort of believe is important wall to wall, teaching people how to use the microphone or, you know, making the microphone louder. I'm using lame metaphor here as I'm literally holding a microphone, but, and then at, at the city, I especially feel that way because there are a lot of people in our town who don't have a computer, for instance, they have public access, they have, you know, a television at home that they can watch the meetings, but they don't have YouTube. They don't know how, you know, so I work to make sure that we're both streaming on YouTube for the people that only do that. And we're streaming, you know, city council meetings on television as well. And um, in my time at the city, I got pretty passionate really early on about um, improving what I found to be a really outdated, technologically outdated setup. I mean, our, you could barely make out what was being said on our public access television channel because there was so much static and just old equipment. The cameras were really blurry. You couldn't see PowerPoints and things like that. And yeah, it, it became really important to me to like fight for like new cameras and like uh, new equipment. What, and how can we do it cheaply? How can I do it cheaply so that people aren't mad about the price tag? And I see that as like my own maybe tiny little activism because I want more people to be able to see it. Sounds like um, activism to me. And one of the things that you're touching on here is something that uh, I have found again and again and again with every guest that has ever uh, come through our little podcast here. They reiterate again and again that their humanities work, any humanities work is more impactful um, when it's community based, when when it's focused on the local, right? When uh, mm-hmm. When we all sort of feel powerless at, at a kind of national level or, or, or global level uh, that that any of the kind of humanities work that we want to do can actually get a foothold and, and make a real difference at our local communities that seems to be not the case that that in fact we can see real changes happen right in front of us because uh, it's at a scale where we can have some impact right um, mm-hmm. City of Moscow I, I want to talk about a little bit uh, more specifically uh, because that is where you're doing your local community work. And that is the place where it sounds like you're having minimal impacts, maybe bigger impacts than you think you're having. But Moscow is in a lot of ways a a kind of, uh, well, I think it's illustrative of the broader social fabric of the United States, some of the broader political questions, ideological divisions and stuff. All of this stuff um, seems to be at the forefront in Moscow in, in ways that are very noticeable if you live there, as, as I did for a few years and as you have now for uh, several years. So we want to, I, I think, for our listeners, sort of uh, clarify that, that uh, what that situation is like in Moscow, Idaho, what some of the sort of uh, local political questions are, some of the local political divisions are, uh, because they are, are quite pronounced. We want to start by just, you know, pointing out that... Um, it is the home of a flagship university in uh, the state of Idaho. The University of Idaho is a pretty large university there. It, it is still, I would argue, um, the heart 
of Moscow, Idaho, much of what happens in the city sort of revolves around uh, the university and, and its activities and its presence there. And along with that, uh, Moscow kind of prides itself as being a, not only having a sort of uh, primary role in the education of the state citizens, but also the home of the arts. In fact, there's a big sign uh, when you drive into Moscow from any direction, Moscow, Idaho, the home of the arts, right? Uh, so tell me about that a little bit. Like, what is the artistic community that's, that I, I would suggest is thriving uh, in a place like Moscow, Idaho? Yeah, I think it's thriving. Um, I think it's really well served by the university's placement at the center of town. I mean, it, it brings in new, excited creative young people every couple years there's a whole new a whole new crew um so i think that's really kept moscow's art scene on its toes in the best of ways um like it probably does in a lot of college towns but in moscow it feels especially important because you know we're we're a blue blue dot in a red sea kind of situation here and there's 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 a lot of um disinterest in funding the arts or keeping something like an art gallery on main street open um there's that that pocketbook is not just automatically open here and, and, and there's several by the way right there, there's like uh several art i know there's the, the big one is the the pritchard right was uh, the pritchard i have it's been. now yeah it's it's now the moscow contemporary it lost its funding um but that's a great example i'm on the board of directors actually at the moscow contemporary and it that was a situation where if there wasn't a really strong arts community here in town and a really engaged one and excited one, that would have just died. Uh, it wouldn't have become something new or remained a, an art space in town. But luckily, there's a lot of people fired up about, no, we are keeping a, an art gallery and a big one right here on Main Street. <laughs> we'll change the name and we'll figure out how to fund it in our own way. But um, that's a really great success story and, and shining example of, of the strength of Moscow's art arts community, for sure. And uh, as you've talked about, there's a sort of surprisingly thriving music scene uh, yeah. locally. Uh, say a little bit about that. We're going to talk more about your specific projects, but just like um, yeah. broadly in the city, what, what's the music scene look like? Um, pre-pandemic or pre, you know, 20, 2020, uh, it was super thriving. We had, you know, a big modest music festival happening downtown annually and, um, multiple venues. Um, and it's since, since things have been slowly opening back up, there's been a lot, it's, it's coming back to life, I'll say. Um, and I think people are really eager to bring it back to life and make more shows happen and make them happen in cool and interesting spaces. And, um, you know, again, the university, there's a whole new crew of people in town from all over that brought their guitars and drumsticks with them. Uh, so I'd say it's thriving right now in the sense that, I mean, I can't seem to, my own bands, we, we have no problem finding shows and going to shows almost every other night, every weekend, but for sure. And um, I, I mean, I, the, the university certainly contributes to that, the sort of art scene there, but I always got the feeling when I was there in Moscow, uh, you know, I'd go to like a, a poetry reading and I wouldn't know half of the people in the audience. And I'm like, these are not just people from the university because I know everybody from the university, yeah. people who just live in Moscow who are coming out for these kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, 
it's it's definitely not just the university um we we get a lot of traffic from uh you know astoria portland direction seattle spokane um boise we're sort of right in the middle missoula we're sort of in the middle of that star pattern of really busy active music scenes and we get a lot of people to come through town and i've actually i'm starting my own collectives organization called available light here in town which is we've got a pa we've got the ability to make really cool flyers and video video flyers and things like that and um we're putting on shows we're, we want to make make it so that moscow is like a place to you know you're going to get taken care of you're going to you're going to make some gas money you're going to get a good audience you know so it's it's all on the up and up in every direction here in moscow with the, with the music scene I, I mean yeah i don't i don't think we're overstating uh both the music scene and the artistic scene and the literary scene and, and uh, how surprisingly uh, sort of robust it is for, for a place the size uh, of, of Moscow, Idaho. And, and again, as you said, located in uh, the state of Idaho, which uh, famously one of the most conservative um, states in the union. And with that in mind, that's the other side, with, with all of this thriving arts community that Moscow boasts, and I, I think rightly so, there is an emerging, I'm, emerging might be not stating it strong enough, there, there is a um, kind of rampant, I, I, I might say, um, strain of conservative evangelical fundamentalist within the city as well and and these, we're not going to name any specific organizations we're not going to name any specific persons this is all easy to google uh if any listeners are um, curious to, to look up specifically who we're talking about but just in terms of you being there and you know we we can make assumptions we're all humanity students and a lot of our listeners we assume are are people either in graduate programs or who have emerged from graduate humanities programs and and those have a sort of naturally uh, left leaning political ideology but we don't want to assume anything about any of our listeners and we don't want to announce anything about our own personal politics but you know you can make whatever assumptions you want about us as uh, graduate humanity students, but you are there in town, and so you're you're up close to see some of the activities. So, can you tell me just a little bit briefly what are some of the activities that you have seen sort of emerging out of this, like I said, conservative uh, fundamentalist uh, evangelical strain? Well, you know, when we when the city, and this is prior to my time at the, working for the city um, in 2020, I was still at WSU. Um, issued a mask mandate like many cities did. Moscow sort of got some national spotlight because of a specific protest that was sort of presented as a public prayer circle, but it was basically some people were arrested. And um, it's- I'll point out, I know we're not, I mean, there's, there is one organization I want to name specifically, and it is Fox News because they sort of pre-hyped this mm-hmm. uh, non-protest mass protest right that's mm-hmm. why uh it ended up getting uh to the size that it got yeah yeah my experience as a uh, com- composition and rhetoric ta while in my mfa program it was in mind during all of that because what i witnessed was um on the ground i was actually standing across the street and saw, saw all of this happen um <laughs> and i kind of knew the greater context i had friends that worked at the city and I, people that were, you know, in the know. What ended up being on Fox News was um, a very specific clip ripped out of context, given sort of its own new context. 
been presented as uh, Christians being arrested simply for praying in public. And um, I thought back to how important the work was of teaching comp and ret at, uh, at the University of Idaho, because anyone watching this right now that's taken a class from one of those classes, especially one of your classes, <laughs> would hopefully be able to see this and say, I don't think this is bullshit. Uh, <laughs> and sort of demand more context or information before they drew any kind of conclusion from it. But had I worked for the city at that time, I, I understand now there's very little I could have done to, in a digital humanities capacity to combat that situation or help give it more context. Um, right. And yeah. so, I mean, speaking of, uh, you know, municipal government, there's also been some push and pull uh, between these uh, these two strains, uh, these two ideological strains, uh, over who's going to be in control of of the city government is is that an accurate way to put it? Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a a lot of noise around every election. It seems like, and and never too many votes, which is sort of interesting to me. So I think there's a sense of a threat to some people politically. Uh, what city council could look like in a couple years or something like that. But largely speaking, I, I think most people are not really threatened by the noise generated around those elections, which alarms me a little bit. I think there should be some some sense of alarm there. But Is that he, answering your question? Though, uh, yeah, yeah I, because it, so the elections are hotly contested and, and the push, push and pull between sort of this artistic university-based community and this, uh, you know, religious fundamentalist community is really the hot button topic of every local election in, in Moscow, Idaho. Um, yeah. So far, the uh, sort of university based uh, artistic community continues to maintain uh, government control there locally. But that has not prevented the this fundamentalist strain from, from finding some other ways to uh, take some control in the city. And, and what are some of the methods that they're using for that? Well, oddly enough, many of them seem to be very good digital media <laughs> it's not content creators. Yeah, they. Yeah, there, there's some probably interesting parallels there. To um, <laughs> I was going to say to my own coming up with this this line of work with you know DIY records and things like that when I was a kid. It's like I don't know, I don't have any support here. I don't have a bunch of money to make this stuff happen. I I, I just I can go to Walmart and buy some blank cassettes and pop them in, figure out on my own how to make it work and then get my tape out there i think that's sort of in a weird way how they're operating um they don't have a big voice in the local government but they know how to make a lot of noise and make it seem like they have a very very big voice but also that is exactly why i think and i think there's a lot of people understand this in the arts community that's why our art needs to be on main street that's why it needs to be loud and we need to have a lot of concerts and we need to make them inclusive and positive because this yeah. uh, this group has a pretty robust presence on main street moscow as well uh right uh mm -hmm. particularly through um buying up certain pieces of real estate and um right having a quote unquote i'm being unfair by saying quote unquote uh university there on uh main street that that sort of teaches uh 
the, these fundamentalist beliefs um, and, and how not only teaches the beliefs, but also teaches how to incorporate them into the broader community, which is sort of their stated goal. Is, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, they've, they've directly declared war on, on the town uh, and claim it as a, as a territory. So, so in, in that vein, what you're dealing with there is not only these two uh, separate, really divisive strains that, that of ideology that are, are pushing against each other constantly in, there locally, but in your position, regardless of how you feel about uh, one side or the other of this political struggle, you have to remain neutral. Um, yeah. Almost by definition of, of your, um, your position there, not only as a representative of the city of Moscow, but producing actual information that's supposed to be intended for all the citizens of, of the city. And mm -hmm. this includes people on both sides of this, right? And so uh, how do you feel about trying to balance your own principles? How do you go about balancing your own principles and understanding at the same time that I have to maintain this sense of neutrality and I, I can't um, really show any uh, tendency towards one set of beliefs or the other? That's such a great question. Um, and, and one that I probably don't directly think about on a day-to-day -day basis enough. <laughs> but I, I would say first step is there's def there's always inevitably areas where you can bring your own flavor and your own sort of perspective, even in government work. Um, and I also think to a certain extent, having some sort of distinct, unique personal flavor in any work that you do is unavoidable. Um, we did a We did a video that was simply about uh, how to leave out your trash and um and i i sort of made a funny video that had a funny song things like that and maybe maybe i'm alone in thinking this but i i think that humor when I, whenever i personally observe humor in something that's the right kind of humor <laughs> um like something like a psa i'm sort of given a subcontext of like who these people are like where it's coming from because oftentimes talks i mean every time <laughs> toxic ideas and really, you know, ugly rhetoric and things like that are just not funny. There's no humor there. Tucker Carlson is not funny. Like it's, he's <laughs> sort of funny in a, in a holy shit, look at that guy way, but there's no sense of humor there. And I've, I've, I could almost say I've never observed a sense of humor with that sort of subset of people. <laughs> so I think just every chance I get, I try to make something funny and sort of, you know, winky when I have to make videos like, like the trash can video um because i think it Which kind you of sent, you sent that to us by the way and and you noted uh when you sent it to us in the email you you said i still have people that come up to me and start seeing this song <laughs> and I, I admit that after i watched the video like for a couple of days after that i would find myself walking around going arrows out <laughs> telling me how to take my trash out even though i don't live in moscow but you're right like that and it was really funny uh you had the video i can't remember which specific uh educational video it was at uh, washington state but it, you utilize like your family pets to uh set up like their um secure password uh or whatever for for the washington state university account right um yeah so yeah, I mean the humor is is there and and things like that uh sort of naturally are neutral, right? Like there there's there, it's hard to provide 
a a kind of a, a political bent anyway to to these sort of straightforward PSAs. But again, as we talked about, I, I feel like these are some of the most baseline activism uh, in digital humanities that uh, that you can do. But what I want to ask uh, while we're talking about it, and since we've sort of brought it up, this, this idea of creativity and humor uh, that you sort of transfer into these uh, what might be more sort of staid, right, straightforward, uh, not fun PSAs. Uh, you don't do them that way. And I'm curious, again, what uh, getting back to sort of the core uh, idea of the podcast, what's your graduate school experience uh, studying poetry or anything else from graduate school contributes to these sort of like PSAs and, and the creativity that you employ in uh, these otherwise uh, sort of very basic digital documents. Yeah, I, in a super personal way, I think um, in my own poetry, I've often, well, I, I sort of have landed at humor being like one of my favorite avenues to find new meaning and to, and to make a poem sort of like roll down the page. Um, I rely on humor a lot in my own writing. And I think just poetry in general has helped me think about, you know, best words in the best order you know i think a lot i think a lot of psas and things that are lost on people are lost because they are long and sort of not the best words in the best order and they're not humorous or engaging they're not they're not a good poem i think anything could be a good poem in quotes you know so to speak if it's given that kind of attention in terms of structure and sort of concision and like clarity and i think i learned a lot about those things in my mfa program Absolutely. Um, I am not saying that a email about how to log into your security protocol at a university is a poem by any regards, but it's often surprising how much, you know, those, those classes. I'm going to be honest, like the PSAs that I saw from you felt personal, right? That you're using your personal family pets, that um, yeah. trash can, um, how to put out your trash song that we were talking about. You wrote that song that the then the video, the the PSA was filmed at your house with you sort of leaning out your window, being the the dumb guy who doesn't know how to put out his trash. Right. I, I think there is that personal feel that you're talking about that you can't help but insert in this feels like it comes directly out of studying and writing poetry and songs. But yeah. Yeah. One, one thing I would add to that for sure is um, I forget who said this to me. And I think I want to say it was Jerry LaFemina, actually back in Frostburg. But I think at some point I was like, oh, I want to stop writing about my family or something like that. Or I want to stop writing about the suburbs. You know, I, I write too much about it. I want, need to, I want to be a poet of trees and whatever. And he said, You're, you can't. It was like, you'll never, <laughs> you'll never get away from your obsessions. And you'll be a stronger, better writer when you, when you accept that and just lean in and let what comes out of you come out of you. Um, and that was a big lesson to learn. And I, and I continued, that was reinforced throughout my education in, in, in the MFA of poetry. It informed the way I do my work now at the city. Yeah, absolutely. Um, does this need to just be a boring PSA or like, can I accept that it's going to be made by me and it's going to have me, I'm a part of it. I might not be in it necessarily the way I was in that trash one, but it's going to have my stamp. It's going to have my creative it's unavoidable so let's have fun with it and let's stay within the bounds of what's appropriate for the medium and for the task at hand but like 
just have fun, make it yours, you know? And I think that's sort of something I learned is okay to believe when I was in grad school. So you're working on so many various projects. And again, this is another thing that uh, is sort of a common thread for everyone that ends up being a guest on uh, this podcast. It's never this one thing that they're working on. And and that also seems to be uh, something that translates out of humanities graduate study and into these public humanities careers is uh, when you talk about yourself as a, as a public humanitarian, you're never you're not going to be that if you're just doing it in this one way. Uh, I, I think that's something that strikes me listening to you talk and, and listening to all of our previous guests talk. But again, sticking with the theme of, of graduate studies and, and how it assists in this, sort of how did how do you see your own sort of graduate work having branched off into all these various projects? Is it sort of a natural thing that it branched off into this or, or did you have to just sort of go in, in search of these or do you, do you think that's a common experience coming out of a graduate humanities program that you're going to have all of these various interests? I think I've always had a bunch of different interests. I've always been a jackass of all trades or one of jackass on the way to being that kind. But, um, you know, looking back, I was debating going to grad school, and I, I remember I, I got the great opportunity to drive the, the Brooklyn-based poet, D. Nerksy, um, back to the airport after he visited Frostburg to read. And I was telling him, I'm thinking about going to grad school, and he he very, very dryly said, like, please don't. <laughs> he teaches at an MFA program. He's, he said, only go if you think you can resist the urge to not come out the other side of it sort of jaded about it. He's like, you like poetry right now. And he was like, just make sure you still like it by the end, you know, do everything in your power. So I think that that kind of made me think that something like an MFA was going to be like three years. And this is sort of how it's pitched to a lot of people. I think it was marketed that way to me, not by the people at UI, but just in general, the culture around it, that, you know, three years where you just get to go write and focus on your project and you're, you'll finish your novel, you know, <laughs> like, uh, and, in, and, it, and it is that for some people, for sure. There were definitely people when I got to the MFA that were like, I'm here for my book and I'll see you later. I'll see you in three years. And they, and I didn't see them. And for someone like me who has been diagnosed with ADHD, I, in this, in, in a situation of um, MFA, I was sort of like, Oh wow. It's not like that at all. There's a million doors open to me right now. Like I could go get an internship at the CDIL. I could be the editor in chief of Fugue or be involved with Fugue, the literary journal that the MFA program puts out. I could do all these things. It's not just poetry class. Like Alexandra Teague, our our teacher, would, would probably jokingly say that I got too involved in too many different things outside of poetry class. But um I I loved that. And absolutely I came out of the MFA with I think I thought I was going in and I was gonna come out a better poet. And that was it. And I came out a better poet and like with all these other new possibilities available to me, like digital humanities, but also like print publications, you know, screenplay writing, just the, I, I sort of just dove in as much as I could. And I swam around as much as I could and got involved as much as I could. And I'm so happy I did because, yeah, I, I, I came out and was sort of able to do the three jobs that I've had since graduate school pretty easily, I think, because of a lot of that exposure. So while you were at the MFA program and while you were doing those studies, you were doing a lot of different stuff, but um, would it be fair to say that uh, music, which was maybe your initial passion uh, artistically and, and one that you had maybe followed the most strongly uh, up until your early 20s, took, did it take a back seat during that time? 
yeah for sure um for a bunch of different reasons there there was a big falling out with the band that i was in um pretty pretty painful one right before i left for the mfa in a lot of ways that's why i went to the mfa when i did was because of that that breakup of that band so i was I was actually totally fine on a personal level putting music. I didn't want to think about it. I kind of thought maybe I was done with it, but you're never done with it. And I was constantly writing the whole, you know, poem song, poem song in the background for the whole three years I was in the program. But in terms of playing a bunch of shows and focusing solely on putting together a set and learning songs with other musicians, yeah, it took a big backseat, but I still did it. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think you sort of answered this already, but that's what I was sort of wondering because it seemed like, Nobody would, as I sort of mentioned uh, briefly in your bio, some of the uh, uh, accolades for, for your poetry that you've received. And I can tell you on a personal level that it's, it's excellent. But Corey is a fantastic poet, um, <laughs> but uh, no less of a fantastic musician, I, I, I think. And uh, so it, it seemed to work out nicely that you had this other creative outlet to, to fall into when... Um, as you said, you just mentally weren't in a space to work on music. And, and I, maybe I'm just sort of repeating what something you just answered, but, but what do you think guides you into the appropriate creative outlet for whatever impulses you're feeling at the time? You may be working on poetry and music simultaneously, and, and it's different impulses driving you to this is going to, this particular thing I'm working on is going to be a poem. This particular thing I'm working on is I'm going to turn into a song. What do you use to sort of guide you into that? Or, or is it all kind of intuitive? I don't want to say that it's intuitive. I, I, I think it's a mess. I think at this, it's a beautiful mess that I sort of, my main mission has been to learn to accept that it's a mess and sort of that's, that's what it is. But lines of poems show up in songs and vice versa with such frequency that I don't, I, I don't know what I could tell you other than that. It's all just kind of one thing especially after the MFA program. Um, I mean, that, that was really the question that I was uh, leading mm-hmm. up to is how, how the MFA, now that you've emerged from it and, and songwriting uh, and performing has, has become a big part of uh, sort of what you're doing again, um, mm-hmm. what, what the MFA did to sort of shape you as a musician. I, would you argue you're a better musician because of the MFA? And, and if so, why? Yes, absolutely. Um, well, I think, I think again, maybe I've, I already said this kind of in, in a different kind of way, but I think that a big skill that I learned in the MFA is not, wasn't just how to write a good poem. It was, I, I took fiction classes. I took nonfiction classes, all of them really, really great experiences. I took screenplay writing classes. I took film studies classes, you know. And so I, I feel like now more often than, I'm struggling with finding like which which medium should I use for this idea. I've sort of been able to sort of sort of step back and just the idea is going to plinko into where it wants where it was going to go. Um, I don't I don't s- struggle with you know oh that's that should be a, that should be a screenplay I should just save put that in that file and just come back to it later. I just have a habit now and I I'm I'm more often shocked that it shows up in some other thing it shows up in a in a song or a poem or a short story or whatever down the down the line and i sort of have embraced that sort of we'll see where it ends up kind of mentality 
which I think is actually a skill. It sounds maybe like I'm just sort of letting letting it happen without design. But I I personally struggle with sitting down and saying, okay, I'm writing a poem about a spider. Let's go. Where's this poem at? You know, <laughs> all of this sort of makes me think that where you might advise uh, somebody going into a graduate program is, look, you can make this what you want. It sounds like that's what you did. Like you, uh, that don't, you don't have to listen to what the expectations are. You don't have to listen to what this experience is, is supposed to be. Do you have any advice to give somebody uh, who might be either already in a graduate program or, or might be considering one? Because you did such a good job of, of turning it into the experience that you wanted it to be. What, what approach would you uh, advise to people uh, thinking about the same thing. Well, I don't want to say that this it's a bad th- that it's a bad way to be, but because I don't know it. Um, but I would just advise maybe don't be the the romanticized version, you know, idea of the of the poet in his in their room with the lights off, working for three years on the perfect poem or the perfect you know book of poems. And I, I, and, I then not, and then and then not. I'm sorry. I think that would extend to any graduate student who's not studying just poetry. Sure, we're here to write, a, you know, a, a critical thesis or, or whatever the the work is yeah. you're doing, uh, whether it's more academic in nature than than creative. Um, same thing, right? You, leaving yourself open to possibilities. I'm I'm sorry, but that uh, yeah didn't mean to interrupt there. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know that that's, that works for some people to close the door and just go 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 for it specifically for me it's like once you graduate you'll see you're not surrounded by brilliant ideas and minds and and just creativity wall to wall you're not swimming in it every day like you are when you're in, when a, in a graduate program and there's just there's so many opportunities for exploration i mean and all of the exploration that you do whether it's you know doing a summer internship at the at the library or something or doing something taking a class that's unrelated to your central focus like it's going to help your central focus inevitably. The more engaged you become and try different things in that in that environment, you're you're only helping your greater goal of just being a more interesting creator or thinker. So just I swim around. I think you'll it's, know. I, I I think most graduate students can sense. So it's hard work. It's exhausting. You're going to be tired. But all of that is different than do you feel happy about what you're doing? And, and I think you'll know if you don't. And if you don't, maybe it's because you, you, you've sort of uh, given yourself this singular idea of what graduate school can be and you're trying to fulfill it and it's not working for you. And if that's the case, maybe it is true that graduate school is not for everybody. But the other reason might be you have other approaches that you can take rather than this single one that you showed up with. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like looking back at my time at the university, especially, you know, the MFA program, I was surrounded by vibrant, alive, exciting ideas and art. And I'm not necessarily right now working for the city, sitting in traffic, waiting for my bagel. So I look back, I was like, wish I had engaged with that stuff more. I wish I had asked more people, like, what are you working on? Like, what can I help? Like, you know, can I, what's that camera? You know, just yeah, gotten more engaged. Well, that, I think that's a great segue into the kind of last thing I want to ask you, and it's it's related to what we're talking about. But um, of, of all these other, you know, sort of opportunities that open up to to 
people in uh, graduate studies and, and going through a graduate program, whatever graduate program it is, it seems like even though we have the digital humanities, which I don't think anybody would argue is not sort of one of the most important emerging aspects of public humanities. Without the digital humanities, it would seem like public humanities can't even continue to exist in within a few years, if if not already, right? We, we might be shortchanging the importance of the digital humanities. And, and yet, in my experience and the experience of a lot of other people I've talked to, graduate programs themselves, humanities programs themselves, still tend to train students primarily in more traditional forms of humanities work. There's not a whole lot of uh, focused work being done on the digital humanities, at least in terms of classes and and courses being offered. Um, There are some opportunities maybe, but you have to seek those out. So maybe I'm stepping on your answer a little bit, but uh, with this in mind and and with you sort of having uh, branched out into uh, what I think we're fair to argue is uh, some very important digital humanities work. What would you say to a graduate student who maybe is at one of these traditional programs, uh, is interested in the digital humanities, but that's not there in terms of uh, coursework or something? What other pathways might they have to learn, quote unquote, to do digital humanities work? Well, just broadly speaking, I would say start by thinking about digital humanities as being sort of, like you said, all around you. Opportunities for digital humanities work abounds. I mean, we're surrounded by something like a tweet to an app on your phone. You know, it it all uses rhetoric and it's all composed and it's all database. We we had a a previous guest whose the focus of her fellowship work was on creating uh, Wikipedia entries. Uh, very specific like uh, Rhode Island artist and and stuff like that again working locally but this is digital humanities it's not as exciting as as it Mm -hmm. might sound but but I think this is impactful uh, in the same kind of ways your work is and and it sounds like that's the kind of stuff you're talking about yeah if if you're at a program a a more in a more traditional program like that and you don't see a lot of digital digital humanities work being done around you there's probably a digital humanities librarian at your library, someone who's specifically working on, someone who's specifically working on, you know, curating metadata, metadata for special collections in the basement, but, or, or everything from that to doing something like what Devin Becker was doing at the University of Idaho, you know, really cool sentiment analysis stuff, running thing, running novels through sentiment analysis and, you know, observing the data on the other side. There's somebody doing that work at your school, I guarantee you. And probably they're probably dying for someone to ask them about it. <laughs> right. So, and, and and come and help. help. Yeah, come and help. <laughs> I need an intern. Yeah. So that that would be number one place. I would have never thought to do that though. I just lucked into it at the University of Idaho though. So But your good fortune hopefully will turn into advice <laughs> for somebody else to actually not wait for it to just drop in their lap and, and go seek it out. Yeah. And you can you can email Devin Becker. Everybody should directly at. <laughs> he would love that. I think, that's a great place to, I think that's a great place to wrap up. We'll make sure uh, Devin gets a copy of the podcast so he can laugh too uh, as he goes through his uh, 150th email of the day. Um, Corey, I think that's a great place to finish, and uh, we really appreciate you being here. I think this is a great conversation, a lot of great information. It's a really interesting conversation, lots to think about for graduate students, and and that's what we aim to do uh, with this podcast. And so uh, you, you have fulfilled that for us quite nicely, and we appreciate your time. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Careers in the Public Humanities. Join us for our next episode when we'll be interviewing another guest working in the public humanities. Feel free to subscribe to our podcast at web.uri.edu slash nextgenphd or find us on most podcast streaming services. Search for Careers in the Public Humanities. This podcast was founded by Rachel Basio and Michelle Meek. This episode was produced by Brianne Nepton and Michael Landreth in conjunction with the University of Rhode Island English Department. The introduction is by Michael Landreth and Brianne Nepton, and the editors for this episode are Brianne Nepton, Michael Landreth, and Darcy Lovell. And Mark Sketa is our sound designer.